Back with Mike Sweeney today talking about something I think that is unique among academic scholars, and that is the publications that they have taken on that we might call popular books. And I've always admired that uh, about you, Mike. So maybe you could give us just a list of some of the books that you've written that you would not put on your traditional scholarship list. My CV has a collection of academic books and monographs. And you scroll down a little bit, and it's got popular books. And there are about 14 or so. It depends how you count them. And they're all with the National Geographic. And so for the Geographic, I have written about um, how America learns about war through war correspondence. I have been to Titanic, not on the ocean floor, but I've been on the scientific expedition that explored it in 2004. Um, yes, I think it was four. I co-wrote the memoir of a lost boy from Sudan, uh, a Dinka, who came to the United States. And the book is called God Grew Tired of Us and uh, was quite a hit, um, paired up with a movie by the same name that was produced by Brad Pitt. Let me drop a name. How about that? I have been to Dogtown for them. I have written about the peace symbol, uh, the 50th anniversary. They wanted me to do a book about the 50th anniversary of the peace symbol, and I discovered that the peace symbol was conceived by an English graphic artist in February 1958. And I went, well, I was conceived in February 1958. <laughs> we have something in common. <laughs> oh, goodness. I've written a bunch of books about the brain, which was an interesting challenge for me because, you know, I don't know anything. I didn't know anything about the brain. But that was one of the things they liked about me after having written several books. They said, Mike Sweeney can write about just anything and make it understandable to a broad audience. And so uh, I did. I ended up doing, what, four books for them about the brain. So I guess they liked what I was doing. Well, I want to ask about some of them specifically, uh, maybe some stories about them specifically. But the first question I really have is, which part of your brain do you think is the part that is engaged in these kind of projects? Is it the scholar part of your brain or the journalist part of your <laughs> brain, or, or obviously both? Um, it's the storyteller part of the brain. I think uh, whether you're an academic or you're a journalist, you're telling a story. It's just a matter of matching that story to the audience. And so, you know, when I write academic books, it's for a, a group of people who have advanced degrees, but when I'm writing books for the most general of audiences, and that's pretty much what you can say about National Geographic, I write the same story, but with a different narrative, with a different vocabulary, uh, with a different plot, so that it is easily understandable. The part that I get is, having been trained as a journalist, I, I know how to collect information and analyze it and synthesize it in a hurry and write it in a hurry. And then from being an academic, <laughs> I'm always paranoid asking myself, is this right? Are you sure about this? <laughs> Are you oversimplifying? So I think the kind of storytelling I'm doing in these popular books is a, a blend of some of the talents that I've taken on as both a journalist and as an academic. Talk a little bit about how this started. How, how did your relationship with National Geographic, how did that start? I have to tell you one of my favorite anecdotes of all time because 
Every time I tell it, Pat Washburn just giggles. <laughs> I got a call out of the blue when I was in my office at Utah State University. And this was November of 2001, so it was just two months after 9-11. And the name on the other end of the line was John Silbersack. And he says, you know, I am calling from a New York agency, and uh, we are trying to find an author for a book to be published by a large publishing company that you have heard of. And I went, well, okay, well, what, what are you interested in? And he said that they were interested in a book about how Americans learned about war during wartime through war correspondence. And he asked if I was interested, and I said, well, I think so. Um, what are you looking for? And he said, well, we're looking for a book that will be easily read by the masses, and we think it's going to be popular because it looks like we're going to go to war. You know, of course, we eventually did with Afghanistan and then Iraq. He said, do you have anything online that would let me know as an agent that you're capable of writing this book? And I said, well, let's see. I've got one thing published. My first book had just been published. My first academic book had just been published. And the publisher, North Carolina Press, had put a chapter on the Internet to kind of tease you to buy the whole book. So I pointed him to that, and he said, no, this is too academic. You got anything else? And I said, well, I wrote this monograph when I was getting my Ph.D., about Ernie Pyle, the famous World War II war correspondent, and how he got his biggest story. The museum in Texas that I sent it to put it online. I said, you can look at that. And he said, hang on, let me call this up. So he's reading it there while I'm sitting in my chair at my desk, and he says, yeah, this is the kind of thing I think they want. I'm going to call them, and uh, I'll, I'll get back to you. And he said, well, what? by the way, before I call them, what do you want to know? And I said, okay. I want to know uh, how many words you want, I want to know when you want them, and I want to know what you'd pay for them. <laughs> and he says, okay, I'll, I'll find that out and I'll get back to you. So the next day he calls me back and uh, he says, 77,000 words, April 15th, and then he named a number. And I think it's a little gauche talking about what you earn, but the number was half my salary. And I went, whoa because I was deeply in debt from going to Ph.D. school. You know, I'd racked up these student debts. The number he named would just about wipe out all of my debt. In fact, I think it would take <laughs> care of all of it. So <laughs> I said to myself, count to five in my head. And I went, one, two, three, four. Yeah, I think we could go for that. <laughs> and then... As a passing, you know, phrase, he says, oh, and by the way, the publisher is the National Geographic. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> I just, my, my head expanded, my ego went, oh, my God, you're going to write for the Geographic. Mm -hmm. And it turns out, yes, we, we signed a contract. Before I get into how I finished that and where we went from there, I just have to say that when Pat and I go places on, on conferences, we always try to eat the local food. And so um, he's asking me at one point when I moved to Utah, he says, what's the local food? And I said, Pat, you're not going to believe it, but it's Jell-O. He goes, what? <laughs> I said, well, think about it. These Mormon families, they got a lot of kids. They got a mouth to feed. And uh, Jell-O is, it'll, you know, it'll fill up a bunch of kids for not much money. You know, it, you can't make a meal out of it. But yeah, I mean, everybody, everybody makes Jell-O in Utah. And he says, okay. So Pat calls me up and he tells me, 
did that agent from New York give you a call? And I said, yeah, Pat, he did. And did he offer you this job? And I said, yeah, Pat, I did. He said, did you take it? Yes. Yeah, I did, Pat. He said, I got to ask. Because <laughs> they called him first and he turned it down. Oh, I had no time to do this. But have you talked to my friend and my colleague and mentee, my former student, Mike Sweeney, out in Utah? So that's how they found me. Pat sent him to me, right? So Pat turned down this gig. And he didn't know how much money he turned down. So he says, I just got to know, how much money was it? And I, I said it. And he swears, and I'm just going to go bleep, holy bleep, that's a lot of jello. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Pat. Yes, Pat, it is. <laughs> I looked at the calendar and the way that I figured out how to do this book while being a professor was I divided it up into six chapters and an introduction. And I said, um, three weeks for each. And that means I have to spend two weeks researching, gathering my books and my articles and my primary documents. And then about three to four days writing. And then like a day to just sort of decompress, just walk in the mountains with my dogs. And then edit. And that's pretty much what I did. So I was cranking this thing out nights and weekends after having taught, you know, a 40-hour week. And I, I got it out uh, on April 13th. Now, you'll remember that my, my deadline was April 15th. So I sent in the last chapter. And this is, they wanted it sent in a, in a FedEx package. I had to give them a printout. <laughs> this is before the days of emailing giant files. <laughs> I gave them my last chapter on April 13th, and that's two days early, right? At National Geographic, it was so swanky back then. It's not as lush now as it was then, but back then I had a general editor, and I had a text editor, and I had a photo editor, and I had a graphics editor. I don't know, I had editors and editors and editors, but the big one, the one on top, I called her the Uberfuhrer. Her name was Barbara, and uh, she calls me up after I sent this in. She said, you sent in your last chapter. Yeah, I said. You sent it in early. I said, yeah. She said, nobody sends book chapters in early. Nobody completes book chapters on time. And I said, well, I'm not a book writer. I'm a journalist, you know. And when you're in the world of journalism, you live to the creed of meeting the deadline, right? Because what is deadline? It's a compound word. First half is dead. <laughs> so I, I told her, I've never missed a deadline in my life. And she said, and I quote, oh, my, can you write about other things besides war? <laughs> And I said, sure, I can do what all journalists do. There are very few journalists who have the luxury of spending a lifetime writing about the subject that they are experts on, you know, like court reporters, for example. Most people uh, are a little broader than that. And I said, what I do is you give me a subject and I'll try to become as much of an instant expert as I can on it, but I will then write the book uh, to your specifications and you'll have it on your deadline. And she said, great. We'd like to offer you a book or two a year <laughs> if you're up to it. And I went, sure. So ever since then, she sent me one or two a year. The payment to me has not been quite so high as that first one, but it was high enough over the next few years to, oh, goodness, pay off my student loans and buy David a car and uh, make home repairs, working nights and weekends. So after that, I did a book about the social history of transportation, which is a history of the way our lives have been impacted by transportation. And that one, I got to go to Washington, D.C., 
And it was the first collaboration between the Smithsonian and National Geographic. So that was interesting because I got access to all the Smithsonian's cool backroom stuff. They gave me a tour of the basement where they were keeping all of these artifacts to put on display. The idea was that the Smithsonian would have their largest display ever, you know, 30 years, and it would be their, their transportation collection. The National Geographic would support this with a book. Okay, so you, you see one, you want to buy the other. I go down to the basement and I've got a tour and, and uh, they're showing me things that are going to be in the display uh, when it goes up. And they say, well, here's C-3PO. <laughs> and I went, wait a minute. <laughs> he was duct taped to a pillar. There are lots of other things in the basement besides uh, artifacts from transportation. But then they'll say, well, here's America's first stoplight and here's the first car that went coast to coast. And and here's, you know, R2-D2, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> so um, finished that book. I went to Titanic after that. It was the first visit to Titanic by Robert Ballard, the man who discovered it, since he discovered it in uh, 1986. And this was 2004. Um, so he was documenting how much it had t- deteriorated in that time. And so every time I'd, I'd give them a book, there'd usually be like a two or three month rest, you know, where I just play golf and play with the dog and get my brain back to normal. And then they'd hit me again. And we did this for, ooh, I don't know, about 10 years. Like I say, we, we've done all sorts of different subjects and, and I like them all. If you're going to ask me what's my favorite book, it'd be like, me asking someone with a lot of kids, well, who's your favorite child? I, you know, I love them all. But I'd probably have to say that this, there are two that are very special to me. One is the book about the Lost Boy of Sudan. And then the other was a book about Logan Canyon that I suggested to the Geographic. So let me do the, the Lost Boy first. The Lost Boy is a man named John Boldow very strong personality, extremely intelligent. And he was a Dinka tribesman in the southern part of Sudan when the Arab armies of the north invaded, trying to take control of the southern part of the country and especially its oil. And they came in and they killed the men who were soldiers and they took away the women and children and you can guess why. And that left young boys, you know, four, five, eight, twelve, all alone in their camps. And these boys uh, gathered together and they marched on their own to find refuge, first in Ethiopia and then in Kenya. Then they came to the United States, 2,000 of them. John Boldow had uh, written a book proposal and sent it off to the National Geographic. And he had done his homework. He had it chapter by chapter. And it was a really compelling story. But his English was not great. You could understand him, but he, he, he needed an editor and he needed someone to give some direction to the story. He needed someone to clean it up. So I had to audition for that. He said, I want to audition to make sure that I picked the right guy. So I was one of three people that he called up and we had a, an hour conversation with. I asked him later why he picked me and he said, it was because you knew what this book should be. And I said, well, what, what do you mean by that? And he, and he said, well, I remember you saying that you were going to ask me for all kinds of concrete detail, and that would make it interesting. And I said, well, okay, yeah, that's, that's right, that's right. What did I say that made it stick in your mind? And he said, well, 
I had written that I was very hungry as I was walking across the desert in Sudan to try to find the next mud hole. Had nothing to eat, nothing to drink. You asked me, how hungry were you? How thirsty were you? And then you asked me, you know, what did you finally end up eating and drinking? And well, I, I found uh, a, a, a turtle and, and I was able to eat her eggs. After that, there, there was nothing. I said, well, what do you mean nothing? What did you, you had to drink, you're gonna die. He said, yeah, I was walking with the man and I, I begged to drink his urine. <laughs> I kind of went, whoa. <laughs> when you beg to drink somebody else's urine, that's a pretty solid idea of just how thirsty or desperate you are. And he said, that's why I picked you, because I knew that we'd get a good story out of this, a gripping story. And I went, great, thank you, John. So I went to Syracuse, where he lives. The Geographic put me up in a hotel, and I put a microphone on the desk between us, and we talked for the better part of 10 days. When he was working, I would go out and talk to people who knew him on campus or in his job. But most of the rest of the time, we just talked. I had a strategy for talking to him. He came in the first day, and he sat down, and he said, well, I guess you want to know about the day that the Jalabas came. Jalaba is Arabic for robe, like a robe you wear. And um, that's what the Dinka called the soldiers from the north, Jalabas. You want to know about the day the Jalabas came? I said, no, no. No, we're going to save that for another day. I want you to tell me about your family and, and your background. Let's start off with, who's your dad? And he told me about his dad for an hour, and we got to laughing. He said he was a very well-respected man among the Denka. What did he do that was so highly regarded? He said, well, he was a judge and he was a wrestler. <laughs> okay. So we had to talk about the importance of wrestling to the Denka, and we had to talk about the importance of judges to the Denka. And we talked about his mother, and we talked about the dowry that was set for her uh, when his parents married. And we spent probably an hour that first day talking about how you figure the cost of a bride in cows. I mean, and we got into it. And this, some of this made the book. He said, well, you get more cows if she's pretty. <laughs> you get more cows if she can cook. You get more cows if her father's important. <laughs> And the whole family is, I mean, all, all the men are there, you know, well, but she's got a beautiful birthmark. Uh, well, where is it? Well, you'll find, you know. <laughs> the whole point of that was just to get him relaxed and just to get him to know me and get us laughing and feeling like we can talk. And finally, on the third day, I said, okay, John, it's, it's time. Tell me about when the Jalabas came. And, and he, he hung his head down. He's huge, he's six, six foot eight, and so his, his knees are sticking way out and his arms are sticking out over his knees and he just plops his head over his arms and closes his eyes and just talks, he just talks. I hardly ever interrupted him, amazing day. I got to feeling like I knew him, uh, so much so that there was a time, I would go back and I would write a chapter and I'd send it to him and he'd read it over and then I'd call him and we'd go through it page by page and he would make corrections and comments. And I get to about chapter five, there's something that I needed to ask him in this little story I'm telling, and I forgot to ask him. And I forget what it was now. It, I, I couldn't tell you what it was. But I wrote something as if we had talked and he had answered my question. I wrote it in his voice. <laughs> so we get to chapter 5, and he says, oh, what is this on page 15? We did not talk about this. I said, I know, John, I know, but I, I, I had to finish the chapter, and I figured this is what you would say. And he said, it is what I would say. You are in my head. <laughs> 
And I went, cha-ting, I got this. <laughs> I guess the other book that I can't overlook among my favorites is the book I wrote about Logan Canyon, which is where I lived. I lived right at the mouth of it and could be in it within a couple of minutes. And I, I called the book The Last Unspoiled Place because it is a gorgeous 40-mile canyon with really nothing in it other than nature. I wrote it in a strange way. So uh, 2006, we'd been together, the Geographic and I, for five years. And uh, Barbara calls me up and she says, hey, is there a book idea you'd like to pitch us? And I said, well, I don't know. What's the advantage of if I do that as opposed to you pitching it to me? And she said, well, if you pitch it to us, we'd pay you a lot more. And I said, well, I have an idea right here. <laughs> so I told them about Logan Canyon, and they snapped it up. So the book is organized as a tour of the canyon, starting at the mouth on the western end where the river comes out, and going up and over to Bear Lake. And I, I split it into five chapters, and each chapter is about a fifth of the canyon, and I talk about natural history and human history, and I bring in something about the Indians and the, and the, the, the plant life and the Mormon settlers and um, you know the fur traders and all that. I had a blast with it because uh, I got to interview people, some of the people I knew, and then I got to find out things about the canyon I didn't know. Now, the second coldest place in the United States is in the canyon, at the bottom of a bowl, and to get to it, you, you gotta get there by snowcat. I went there you know, in the middle of winter, and, and I can feel going down to the bottom of the bowl, these little knives of ice just jabbing into my legs and arms. It's that cold. You know, it's like 80 below, 86, something like that below. And then we went uh, on, on Snowcat to a place where a returning airplane from the Korean War crashed in the middle of the night in the winter. You can still go there today. I've been there several times in the summer. And you can just, you know, root around and you'll find buttons and bits of uh, boot lace and other things from this crash in 19, early 1950s, not sure of the year. Of course, the war ended in 53. Anyway, the point was I got to fall in love with this part of the country that I had called home for several years and see it in ways that not many people would be able to see it. And then I sort of shared this version of their home with the readers of Logan and the surrounding valley, uh, Cache Valley. I don't think the book did all that well nationwide, but holy cow, in Utah, <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a bestseller. They, you know, they sold out at uh, the local um, Chamber of Commerce and Tourism Industry, uh, Tourism Board, and they said, as many books as you can get, get them. We'll sell them. You know, an author likes to hear that sort of thing. I, I didn't make a whole lot of money off that book after all, but it was sure a, a delight. Well, I want you to go back and tell a little bit more about the Titanic visit, because I think a lot of listeners would be interested to hear what did you observe and what were your interactions like? Okay, well, I'm, I'm um, co-authoring this with um, Bob Ballard, who uh, is a, an archaeological oceanographer. He studies oceans and he studies essentially shipwrecks. Bob Ballard was setting up this expedition with the help of the United States government, and so he had the loan of a NOAA ship, the Ron Brown. Uh, NOAA is National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, so it's sort of like the earthbound counterpart to NASA. So the Ron Brown is a state-of-the-art ship, holy cow. It had a GPS that you could lock into your engines and you could stay 
within an inch of uh, where you want to be on the ocean surface, no matter what the weather. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's cool. But it's important because they had to lock themselves in directly above Titanic, which is two and a half miles below on the ocean floor. On this trip, it was decided that there, there would be no human beings actually going to the ocean bottom because there's a lot of risk when you do that. The pressure is 8,000 pounds per square inch. Uh, you just have any little flaw in your machine and it goes poop and there go your lives. So what Valor wanted to demonstrate was that you could explore shipwrecks remotely using robots that were controlled by a crew on the surface. And the robot had to be connected by a cable to the surface ship because radar and other electromagnetic signals don't travel very well underwater. And so we had to have a coax cable, <laughs> two and a half miles long. And they had a couple of exploration vehicles, but the one that was really impressive was filled with tiny little glass beads, each of which had a tiny little dot of air inside it. And you put this over the side, and it's uh, buoyancy neutral. It doesn't float and it doesn't sink. So they could propel it down to the bottom of the ocean, and they could crawl it along the sides of the Titanic and take pictures of the decks and uh, you know where people had gotten into lifeboats or had jumped off or whatever. They did several circuits. They did uh, you know, uh, a sweep of the debris field. They wanted to go inside, but the U.S. government said, no, we're not ready for that yet. I think you know, because there are still bodies inside the Titanic. So we just made this wonderful 3D kind of map of the Titanic to show how much it had deteriorated since that first visit. Part of this was a plea you know, when we get back to make the Titanic an international park because um, it's in the middle of the ocean. It's not claimed by any one nation. But, you know, if we make it an international park and everyone signs off on that, then um, you can only go to it with international approval. You know, right now, anybody can go to Titanic uh, if you have the means to get there. It's extremely expensive, right? But I found on this trip, okay, I'm with some of the greatest scientists in the world on this trip. And I was a little intimidated at first because, you know, here I'm just the journalist. But each day when I was out, I would file a news story to the National Geographic Service, and it would go out on the wires, and, and some papers picked it up. I remember these scientists coming up to me and saying, this, did you write this? I said, yeah. He said, this is good. I mean, this is really good. And I was taking, you know, what they were talking about, and I was, I was putting it in plain English, you know, which if you can do that, you have good work for life. <laughs> Not many people can do that. So they're saying how much they love this. I remember I had a photograph that I took blindly. You know, when you hold the camera over your head and, and point down and go, I hope I get this. And I got the perfect shot of Bob Ballard standing in front of the exploratory robot after it had just been pulled up and plopped on deck. And it ran in the New York Daily News in full color. And I went, whoa, I'm, I'm there, man. <laughs> but these scientists were a hoot because they're just like little kids, as am I. So we watched the live feed from the robot on the ocean floor in sort of like an auditorium slash, auditorium slash laboratory on the Ron Brown. There's somebody in another room directing it with propellers, and then we got lights, and we got moving cameras, and we got uh, still cameras. Uh, no sound. 
So we're watching these images, these live images, and they're, they're really poignant. If you know anything about Titanic, you know, okay, so here's the boat davit, the little boat crane that lowered a lifeboat uh, down into the ocean. Still standing, it still it hasn't fallen, you know, from uh, erosion. And that's the very boat crane where Isidore and Ida Strauss parted. Isidore and Ida, they owned Macy's, uh, so they're wealthy. Ida gets in the lifeboat, and Isidore tries to get in right after her, and, and someone says, no, sir, uh, women only. And on the other side of the boat, it was women first, and then men okay. But this guy says women only, and so Isidore stepped back onto the deck, and Ida has the choice of her life to make. Do I live without my husband, or do I die with him? Isidore sets in a deck chair, and Ida gets out of the boat and joins him. She'd rather die with him than live. That's so poignant. We're watching this in live. You know, we come to the boat davit where that decision was made, right? And it's deadly quiet. And I thought, this movie needs some sound. So I just started humming. I went dun 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 right? Right of the Valkyries. It's the the movie music you always hear for like the 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 big ride. You know, the hero is coming to save the day or whatever. I got to the end of that line and like four or five of these big brain scientists join in in unison with no prompting. And what they sing is, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. <laughs> they appreciated Looney Tunes. And uh, what is it? What's Opera Doc? The cartoon where Bugs Bunny and, and uh, Elmer Fudd sing Wagner. <laughs> So I thought, okay, these are real people. And I had a blast doing that. I was out there for, oh goodness, two weeks. And on the way home, we hit a, a huge gale, 20 and 30 foot swells and you know, 10 foot waves and you know, 40 mile an hour winds. And we had to lock ourselves in our rooms. And they said, oh no, there's no problem. But they said, if you're not part of the crew, stay in your roof. <laughs> I said, no problem. <laughs> And we eventually got back to, to, to Boston, and I, I flew home to Utah and wrote that book in about three weeks. The other story that I always enjoyed hearing you talk about is one of your books about the brain and how that was presented on television by a certain magician. <laughs> All right, so two of my books have had four words by big names. I guess the thinking of the geographic is if you have a, a, a you know, forward by so-and-so that it's going to tip the balance and make you buy the book when you're thinking about it. So one of my brain books was on the Colbert Report. The guest was David Copperfield. He was on for other things, but he was plugging this book. And here's the thing. <laughs> David Copperfield can write. His stuff is gripping as he talks about magic and how the organization of the brain can help you believe things that aren't true. In, uh, in fact, in some cases, it seems to be wired that way. So Colbert is asking him about this, and oh goodness, <laughs> it was a great exchange. Copperfield is talking about maybe playing some magic on uh, Colbert. He says, so uh, Stephen, who's the most important, biggest, amazing hero in your life? Uh, and the idea is, I could so engage you that this guy would walk by and you wouldn't know who it was. 
And Colbert says, well, I don't know, but I see his face every morning when I'm shaving. <laughs> anyway, they didn't talk about the book for long, but they held it up on, on national television, and you could see right there, it said, by, you know, Michael S. Sweeney, with forward by David Copperfield. It just it kind of ticked me off that this guy could be so good at his job. What a great ma magician, and he's so good-looking, and he's so rich. He's got everything going for him, and he writes well, too. Is there no justice in this world? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to wrap this uh, up by, by asking you to reflect on how you think your popular books will help your grandsons know know who you are and you know be able to kind of be in touch with you because the idea of reading an academic book might not be that appealing but these popular books I think are so accessible that as your grandsons grow up that these will be their way to to learn a lot about how you think and how you write I think you're right but I think these tapes that you're making are also going to be uh, very important in having my grandsons remember who I am. But to get back to the books specifically, I can see my grandsons reading God Grew Tired of Us. I wrote it in the simplest possible language because I was writing it as if I were John Bull Dow and as if he were 17 or 18 and just getting started with his education. I think that there are life lessons in that book and some others. He went through terrible trauma time and time again, and he never lost his optimism. He never lost his faith in humanity. That's an important lesson. We all need to learn that one pretty quick. You're going to be tried over and over again in your life. And how you respond to that, how you decide to respond to that, is going to determine who you are, not just now, but for the future. I could certainly see my, my grandsons reading that. As for the impact on the, on the rest of the world, I don't know. Some of these books you might stumble across in secondhand bookstores someday. That's probably the main way you'll find them. Either that or Google or, or some other website, Amazon. But I've already felt like my books have made an important contribution. I went online when God Grew Tired of Us came out just to see how it was being reviewed around the world. There was a reader in Australia who had posted a note at the bottom of some story, and it was quite a lengthy note. And the reader said, essentially, this book saved my life. I was going to commit suicide until I read this, and I changed my mind. And I thought, that is such a powerful endorsement. I'm still speechless all these years after reading that, that something that I could write in the United States would prevent someone from committing suicide, from, from taking their own life in, in Australia, half a world away. I think it tells you something about our shrinking, globalized planet, that I could touch someone I've never met on a subject that neither uh, they or I could have envisioned that, that I would write about. I think some of my books have, a, have an impact, some more than others. I tried to make them all as honest as possible and as much as possible part of me, part of my voice. You know, nobody writes the same way. We all have our individual voices. And when I'm an academic, I, I guess I'm an, I call my, my voice academic smartass. 
I know my stuff, but I got to put my little pokes and jokes in sometimes. I don't think I do that as much when I'm writing my popular books. I, I think I write them as if you and I are, are having a chat, and I'm telling you what I think you'd like to know. And along the way, maybe some things you need to know that you didn't think you needed to know. It's been quite the adventure. I, I, I gave up writing these popular books about a decade ago. And I miss the income, but I don't miss the long hours, you know, sometimes late at night on Saturday and Sunday. That's a wonderful overview, Mike. Thank you for sharing about that. And I, I again, I really know of no other academic in, in our field who has written so prolifically for a popular audience while also maintaining an active career producing academic research. Too. So I really congratulate you. I'm very fortunate because uh, Utah State considered what I wrote for popular press books uh, to be part of uh, my, my package when I went up for promotion and tenure. In other words, it counted for promotion and tenure. That continued on here at, at Ohio. I only wrote a couple books, I don't know, three or four here while we were in Ohio, but I would put them on my CV and, you know, when I had my yearly self-evaluation, they counted, right? It's professional work. We say at the Scripps School of Journalism that, that the work that connects with the public uh, is just as important as the work that connects with academics. And, oh boy, I agree, you know, if we're just talking to each other in the ivory tower, we're not having an impact on the real world. Mm-hmm.